Hello and welcome to The Reader Podcast. My name is Frances and I work for The Reader, which is a national charity bringing thousands of people together every week all over the UK in order to experience and enjoy great literature through shared reading. In issue 71 of The Reader magazine, we interviewed Iona Heath, a family doctor who practised at a London clinic for over 30 years and a former president of the Royal College of General Practitioners. In that interview, Iona spoke about why reading literature can provide doctors with necessary tools for their work. Books can give access to a breadth of experience, insights into other cultures and ways of seeing the world, and remind us always that there's a difference between the generalised picture and the particular personal experience of being part of that picture, the difference between the disease and the person suffering from it. We can use literature to try and make ourselves understood, and while reading a poem or story, we can suddenly feel ourselves to be understood or seen as never before. We asked Iona to recommend a poem that expresses some of her thinking, and she suggested this one, by Jamaican poet Kai Miller from his 2014 Forward Prize-winning collection, The Cartographer Tries to Map His Way to Zion, in which the cartographer tells off the Rastaman, by Kai Miller. The cartographer sucks his teeth and says, Every language... Even yours is a partial map of this world. It is the man who never learnt the word scroop, sound of silk or chiffon moving against a floor. Such a man would not know how to listen for the scroop of his bride's dress. And how much life is land to which we have no access? How much have we not seen or felt, or heard, because there was no word for it, at least no word we knew. We speak to navigate ourselves away from dark corners, and we become, each one of us, cartographers. As I've mentioned on the podcast before, This year, the reader has created a bookshelf of literature that will inspire and inform our reading and programming. And the theme of this selection is Walking the Earth, meaning the bookshelf brings together literature about physical journeys and journeys through hardship, about landscape and how human beings relate to the world around them. If we are all, each one of us, cartographers, then the bookshelf provides tools for mapping our way forwards, but it also shows how much of our experience resists easy categorisation. Kai Miller kindly agreed to be a guest at another of the readers' events celebrating Sefton's year as Liverpool City Region's Borough of Culture. Here he is, talking first about how he writes and the difficulty of living in lockdown, about some of the ideas behind that 2014 collection, And then you'll hear him read and talk about a few of the poems from that collection. This period, this awful period that we're (laughs) in, is the longest I have ever been in one spot. I've 
it just it, it feels excessive to talk about it but right before the lockdown my this was my travel i flew from exeter to ethiopia flew to ethiopia then went to kenya then from kenya went to ghana then from ghana went to trinidad for carnival and then came back to the uk right before the lockdown and have been at home now jesus 14 months <laughs> <laughs> But before that, it was like every two months I was going somewhere else. And writing happens all over the place, you know, it, because you just have to steal bits of time. I don't think I'm someone who's ever been fixed to a location and could say that I wrote this project here because that project was written in so many departure lounges, in so many rooms, in so many different, in multiple places. Wherever I was traveling, to, I'm going with my laptop and I'm writing. So. The work itself doesn't attach itself to a single location. I, I don't have a kind of single study at home where I go, oh, this is a place where I am going to sit down and write. It, I, I find it very difficult to write in a confined single space. And so part of this lockdown means that I haven't been writing because even though it seems like you have all this time and all this space, it's just not how I write. I need, I need people around me. I need sounds you know it's this is awful <laughs> i picked up a book by david what's what's his last name anyway it's called the power of maps and i just never thought about maps like that again well before and, and there's so many things that that made sense to me you know that all the things that that happened in the collection that the, the really interesting thing about a map is never what's on it but it's what's not on it that a map is a way of seeing and when I consult a map, I am looking at someone's way of seeing this place or my own country. And I am only seeing what they thought was important for me to see. And, you know, it just made, it just brought up all those questions. Uh, if someone else were to draw a map who found other things important, we'd obviously see another version. And how do you write that story? Because even though I'm talking about cartography, it's very obvious from early that what I'm really talking about is writing. It is clearly a metaphor for, for how do we write it. And, and I guess there's that poem, you know, where it talks about that wonderful word that I discovered, scroop. If we don't have a language for something, we don't see it. Uh, you know, that really becomes that moment. It's the same as the map that that if no one thought it important to give that thing a word, then you will never notice it. You know, I, I had never before thought about the fact that chiffon or silk moving against a floor makes a sound. And until I heard the word screw, then all of a sudden I look out for that sound all the time. I go, whoa, that is a screw that is being made. And it's because now I know the word for it. And therefore, now I can see it, or now I can hear it, now I can perceive it. And so, yes, that, that is definitely the same. And I think there is, that's when writing has a duty. It has a duty to name things, you know, to see things again, or to, to make people perceive what was not perceivable before. And so it's not just using that, but inventing language all the time, or finding a way to, to focus our attention on things. I think as well, those of us who move between languages, that becomes an easier concept, you know? And I think there are feelings that I might have, whether in Jamaican Creole or in Spanish, that 
simply don't exist in English. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh my God, this feeling that I'm having is a Spanish feeling. It's a uniquely Spanish feeling. I cannot express it in English. So, so yeah, I, I think language is just kind of wonderful like that, that when we have access to different languages, we have access to different feelings and to different perceptions because they exist in that language and probably not in another. Yeah. All right, so let's start with what the map maker ought to know. On this island, things fidget, even history. The landscape does not sit willingly as if behind an easel holding pose, waiting on someone to pencil its lines, compose its best features or unruly contours. Landmarks shift, become unfixed by earthquake, by landslide, by utter spite. Whole places will slip out from your grip. And then the actual sequence begins. The cartographer tries to map away to Zion. One, in which the cartographer explains himself. You might say, my job is not to lose myself exactly, but to imagine what loss might feel like. The sudden creeping pace, the consultation with trees, and blue fences and whatever else might prove a landmark. My job is to imagine the widening of the unfamiliar and also the widening ache of it. To anticipate the ironic question, how did we find ourselves here? My job is to untangle the tangled, to unworry the concerns, to guide you out from the cul-de-sacs into which you may have wrongly turned. Two in which the Rastaman disagrees. The Rastaman has another reasoning. He says, no, that man's job is never straightforward or easy. Him work is to make thin and crushable all that is big and as real as ourselves is to make flat. All that is high and rolling is to make invisible and worthless. Plenty of things that poor people can't do without, like board houses or the corner shop from which Miss Kate sell our famous peanut porridge. And then again, the map maker's work is to make visible all them things that should have never exist in the first place, like the conquest of pirates, like borders, like the viral spread of governments. Three. The cartographer says, no, what I do is science. I show the earth as it is without bias. I never fall in love. I never get involved with the muddy affairs of land. Too much passion instead is the hand. I aim to show the full of a place in just a glance. Four, the Rastaman thinks, draw me a map of what you see and I will draw a map of what you never see. And guess me whose map will be bigger than whose. Guess me whose map will tell the larger truth. Yeah, so that's how that sequence begins and you, you pretty much know how it continues. Yeah, there's definitely that binary thing going on between the cartographer and the Rasta man. But one of the ways in which I'm trying to break up that binary is by all these other poems in between that has different views and it's still talking about math, but it's not necessarily a conversation between those two, but it's still, it's still concerned about the same kinds of things. 
So I'll read this poem, um, A Prayer for the Unflummoxed Beaver. And it's, it was one of the first poems that I wrote for this. And I think lots of the ideas of the collection came from this poem. And it was just that one line, a prayer for the languages we know this landscape by. That made me think about all kinds of odd things. And the other thing to know that is happening in this poem is uh, one of my best friends at the time was a Czech novelist, uh, Hannah Andronikova. And at this point, uh, Hannah was, was very, very ill uh, with cancer. She did eventually pass. But this was a moment when, you know, it's, it's at that point where you think things could change. And she asked all her friends, wherever they were in the world at this specific moment, if they could pray for her. And at that moment, I happened to be in New Orleans on the bayou. And the boat came across this beaver that, you know, I just thought that wildlife, animals in the wild, you come across them and they scamper away. And this beaver just stood its ground and stared us down with absolute swag, which, which I thought was, you know, really beautiful. So the two things are coming together in this point. A prayer for the unflummoxed beaver. A prayer for the unflummoxed beaver. So unmoved by the boat's slow approach, the boat drifting across the flat green acres of water. A prayer for these acres of water, which in the soft light seem firm. The squirrels, however, are never taken in. A prayer for the squirrels and their unknowable but perfect paths. See how they run across the twisting highway of cedars but never crash. A prayer for the cedars and their dead knees rising from the water like tombstones. A prayer for the cedar balls that break when you touch them and stain your fingers yellow that release from their tiny bellies, the smell of old churches, of something holy, a prayer returned to the holy alligators. You owe them that at least. For just last night, when you thought of Hannah Andronikova, you asked them to pray with you, knowing that their prayers are potent. At night, the grass is full of their red eyes, a prayer for the grass, which the alligators divide in the shape of a never-ending S. You lean over to pull some into the boat in Burma. This is called kanapa and can be cooked with salt and oil. A prayer for the languages we know this landscape by, for the French as spoken by fat fishermen, the fat fishermen who admit to the water, we all dying, you understand, Savi? A prayer for the dying that will come to all of us, but may it come soft, as a boat drifting across the bayou, may it find us unrattled and as unflummoxed as the beaver. And I guess just, just sticking with the kind of elegy so I don't have to go back to that mood uh, a second time after leaving it, I'll read you my mother's Atlas of Dolls. And I guess the poem is pretty self-explanatory. You know, my mother had this, she had this shelf of dolls, which I just really found macabre. We were all instructed to do this. Whenever we traveled, we had to bring back a doll from whatever country. And it's become a really significantly large collection. And you have to admit, there's something weirdly scary about that. Anyway, my mother's Atlas of Dolls. Unable to travel, my mother makes us promise to always bring back dolls as if glass eyes could bear sufficient witness to where 
she has not been, the what of the world she has not seen. She gathers them, cloth and porcelain pageant on her whatnot, makes them stand regal on white doilies, waving like queens from their high balconies. Miss Columbia, Miss Holland, Miss Peru are just a few who observe unblinking the new world about them. I think of how we arrange the dead like dolls, set their arms in precise positions, how we touch their unseeing eyes, and how they lie so sweetly still within their perfect boxes. It may have been the dolls that taught my mother how to die, how to travel once again, how to wave goodbye. That was Kai Miller, reading from his collection, The Cartographer Tries to Map His Way to Zion. We are very grateful to Kai and to his publishers, Carcanet Press, for allowing us to use that recording of his poetry. In her Reader Magazine interview, Iona Heath also talked about how reading poems could be particularly useful for doctors because of the existence of uncertainty in poetry. However much doctors, cartographers, and those of us with scientific minds may wish for certainty for an exact diagnosis of our problems, there will always be uncertainty, that map of what we never see. And poetry can be a holding ground for that too. It can be an almost physical space where we can sit with the uncertainty for a while. We're going to hear now from Erin, who works at the Reader, about a particular poem which creates that peculiar, mysterious space for members of her shared reading groups. Interludes by Dabjani Chatterjee Not a beginning, not an end. This neutral place is rich with stillness, with movement in all directions. In the word of the prophet, we are travelers. So pass in peace, stranger, though our orbits differ. I too have rested here at these limbo interludes in our shared planet's rotation. So catch your breath and let my words welcome you like a friend's blessing. May the space around you expand and glow in the warmth of knowing that it's only a corridor, not a beginning, not an end, but a green oasis. Hmm. Hello, my name is Erin and I work with the reader. I'm a teaching and learning leader. And this poem Interludes by Dibjani Chatterjee is uh, a poem that I return to often, not only uh, for my own reading, but it's one that I 
bring to a lot of shared reading groups and especially I think it it works really well in groups with first-time shared reading group members. Um, I've seen on a number of different occasions, you know, coming in and people aren't really sure what is this that we're doing? What is shared reading? I'm not really sure what that is and might be feeling a bit nervous about what it is that we're going to do together. And I've seen through reading this poem together, not only does the poem itself hold that space for people to just take a breath in their own self, um, yeah, I too have rested here at these limbo interludes. Um, so catch your breath and let my words welcome you. May the space around you expand. All of these things, you can just see people as we're reading it and rereading those particular lines, almost just physically settle into their own selves. And I think that's a really lovely it's really lovely to see and to bring that and to, and to hold that space for people in shared reading groups. Um, but I also think there's something in this poem that does a really good job of explaining what shared reading is. And I, I think it's in the lines where it says, not a beginning, not an end. This neutral place is rich with stillness, with movement in all directions. I think it's that idea of a place being rich with stillness, but with movement in all directions. Something in that has always captured for me the feeling that I get in shared reading groups and the feeling I hope to create uh, or help hold in shared reading groups. A space where you can sit and be still, that place to catch your breath. But I also have all of those movements in all directions as well, all those connections that are being made, all the all the thinking that's going on, while at the same time, a rich stillness. I remember the first shared reading group that I brought this poem into. It was shortly after I had moved to London, and it was one of the one of the first shared reading groups that I had led and I myself was feeling quite nervous because you know I had all these questions of oh is this going to be good am I going to do a good job I want to you know really ensure that I that I do a good job at this and is this what everyone wants and I just had all these sort of frantic um frantic worries of my own and I found this poem and it it sort of helped break down my worries that pile up um, and it gave me a space just reading it in my own time gave me a space to just sit and take a breath and I I thought all right this is this is the one this is what I want to bring in because of how important that space was for me and so I brought in the poem it was it was a small group of us probably only five or six of us and I could tell going into the group that some people were a bit unsure what we were going to do. It was their first time in a shared reading group. And uh, many of them, I think all of them actually, had English as an additional language. Um, and so I could tell, you know, they weren't entirely sure what it was that we were going to do. Is this like uh, an English lesson? Um, are we expected to read the poem aloud? What are we supposed to get from it? And... Um, 
it was lovely to see as we were reading it aloud you know we read it through a couple of times at the beginning in a slow way and could see people just settling in uh, having that space to take their own breath uh, even if you know even if you don't know right away what everything the poem is saying what all the words mean I could I could see people in the group just taking their own breath settling into their own selves and we we did actually go on there was somebody in the group who I think she had just very little English and throughout the group uh we 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 actually it went from us reading it aloud in English to um, group members translating the poem on the spot so that this other group member could still feel included in part of the group. And I remember in that moment, uh, you know, watching this poem being translated around the room. And I was just thinking about that line when it talks about you know, I too have rested here at these limbo interludes in our shared planet's rotation. May the space around you expand. May the space around you expand. There was something in the expanding of the poem in that moment. Um, how it was settling on us as we just read it aloud. How it was expanding even more as we worked together to figure out what the words were saying and the feeling we were getting from them but then also how it was expanding to a moment that you know I couldn't even understand <laughs> watching watching the poem watching the poem as it expanded through the words of the translators and also as it landed um, for who the poem was being translated for. It was was really lovely to to be part of that moment. Um, yeah, and I'm really grateful to it. Erin's story there about the group who are translating the poem interludes into other languages as they read it together picks up on what Kai Miller was talking about earlier, about moving between languages, about feelings called into focus by the discovery of the words that express them. It's almost as if poetry can be a language of its own, existing in hinterlands or in-between spaces, a means of navigating that inner landscape beyond the reach of ordinary, everyday speech. Ulysses, a great mythical traveller, says in the words of another poet, Alfred Lord Tennyson, this, I am a part of all that I have met. Yet all experience is an arch wherethrough gleams that untravelled world whose margin fades forever and forever when I move. Poetry, literature, particularly via shared reading, keeps us moving, keeps us thinking, keeps us uttering ourselves and speaking to each other. And that's it for this episode of the Reader Podcast. 
Many thanks to Dajani Chatterjee for allowing us to read her poem Interludes from the collection Albino Gecko, published by the University of Salzburg Press. And thanks again to Kai Miller, whose collection of essays, Things I Have Withheld, is published this month by Canongate. Kai Miller's poetry, including the most recent collection In Nearby Bushes, is published by Carcanet Press, and we're so grateful to them for their long-term support for the reader. All the poems you've heard on this episode are from the reader's bookshelf, Walking the Earth, and if you want to know more about that, please visit the reader website. Many thanks to Erin, and as always to Chris Lynn for his sound editing and production support. The reader relies on the support of our core funders, Arts Council England, the National Lottery Community Fund, the players of the People's Postcode Lottery and the Steve Morgan Foundation. We'll be back soon for more conversation, recommendations and shared reading. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please visit the reader's website to find the various ways you can support all our work through donation or subscribing to the reader magazine or becoming a friend of the reader. Or you can simply leave us a review on your podcast platform and help to spread the word. Till next time, goodbye.